as soon as you have those, uh, your scriptures open to that page, you just stand with me. We'll read 1 Peter 2. The same context will start in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Let's start out. Father, we need you. God, I need you. Lord, you know that um, apart from you, we have no good. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, we, we are nothing without you. God, there's no energy. There's no life. There's no spirit apart from your energy, your life, your spirit poured out upon us. So would you come? Would you come and, and bless the reading of your word? Bless the looking into your word, would you give your people ears to hear and your servant? God, give uh, yeah, the, the ability to speak clearly and to communicate with your strength and not in my own. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would come and be glorified through your word, that this would be an act of worship, of listening, even participating in the ways that the church can and does in hearing your word preached and proclaimed, glorifying you. Acknowledging you are just, justifying you, God, and acknowledging that your word is true. And in me, Lord, as, as I speak, may it be done, uh, Lord, speaking the oracles of God, so that in all things you might be glorified, speaking in the strength that you supply, that you might receive glory and not man. Lord, we love you much this morning. So come and do ministry among us in the hearer, in the listener, in the speaker. We, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, welcome this morning. Welcome those of you who have been out. Uh, Joseph, Brother Joseph Williams and his family. Pastor, welcome back. Welcome back from your trip. Nolan, welcome back from the Holy Land. Look forward to hearing how that went. So, looking forward to stories. Welcome this morning. Eric, I haven't seen you in a while. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, welcome my in-laws, Raven and Becky Rogers. So when they found out I was preaching, they said, we're going to be there, no pressure. So the pressure that I remember coming was before Vicky and I were married. Rogers is cattleman, and I was told when we first had steak together, you're cooking. And I said, really, really? So fortunately, Mr. Rogers likes his well done. So that's, that's pretty Pretty doable. Well, the shape of the preacher this morning, I was going to tell you guys, is honestly, I'm pretty sore. I've started a new workout regimen. It's called CrossFit. Uh, thanks to my housemate, uh, Peyton Kramer. So at 6.30, I, I got there, and Peyton had my, our workout, because there's three of us, all on the board. So two-mile run, not jog, 
a walk, but a run. And then, and I'm stretching now for, for good reason. Then uh, came the, uh, the push-ups and deadlifts intermittent, right? So like 24 push-ups, is that what it was? And then, what was it, nine deadlift? And then nine repetitions of that? So, folks, I hadn't deadlift since the 90s. I am not exaggerating. I, how many people were alive in the 90s? Okay. Some? Mom and dad? Raise his hands. So, honestly, I'm not kidding. That was the last, last time I, I did that. So, so, I'm pretty sore. But it did provide for a great illustration. Uh, the battle uh, against... Uh, yeah, the flesh, the, the war that wages the very fleshly desires because, man, my spirit was willing, but my flesh was very weak. And I had not eaten that morning. In fact, it had been a minute. Vicky was gone. And so I went straight from ketosis to just insurrection. My body just went from ketosis to insurrection saying, hey, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't know what you're thinking. But so I was literally flat on the floor trying to do a girl push up. So, hey, I'm just going to own it. That's what happened. So I think it will provide ample illustration. And I will be stretching up here because I, I'm still having a hard time eating with my right hand. So just getting the right hand to the, the mouth. But this morning, CBC family, we can be passionate about a great deal many things, right? But I ask you this morning, are you at war or at your peace? I'm asking what, do you, what, what kind of mentality it marks your life? A wartime mentality or are you at peace? Will you finish well? When your eyes close in death, what will the final word on your life be? We admire the single-mindedness of men like Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma, and is now in Myanmar, right? He laid down his life in that rocky soil of the human heart so that there might be a remnant that believe, including the Karen people who are resettled right among us, who still acknowledge Dr. Judson as being their missionary, the one that came with the good news. Or how about Jim Elliott who gave us, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. We admire them, why though? Yes, because of their life, but he died at 29, right? Laying down his life for the Alka, the way of Donnie, to come to Christ. It was only recently that Minkaya, who led the spearing party that killed uh, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, uh, died himself as a believer. He's in heaven now, right? And Steve Saint uh, is looking forward to uh, being with him. Steve, the, the grandson, of, or the son of Nate, who called his, his kids, called Minkaya, their grandpa. So if you haven't looked into that story, it's truly amazing. How about Eric Liddell, the Scot, Scotsman, right? Scottish brother who laid down his life as a missionary before that, stood and would not try to qualify for his heat, what he was strong in, the 100-meter race in the 1929 Olympics, but instead went on to win the 400-meter, the much longer 400-meter and set a new world record. The quote, I believe, is that when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love the story of Eric Liddell. What about William Wilberforce? The youngest to be elected as British, in British Parliament in 1780 at 21, who eventually was instrumental in eliminating the slave trade after being converted to Christ. He says this, 
God has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of society. Wilberforce would work tirelessly to get the slave trade abolished. And finally, in 1833, just days before he died, he heard that it was indeed abolished. Finally, but what about the author of this letter? What about Peter, the apostle, young fisherman who left the nets to follow a young Jewish rabbi from nowheresville at the invitation, come, follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. What did Peter live and die for? I believe we know in his second epistle because he tells us. He says in 2 Peter 1, 13 and 15, I think it is right as long as I'm in the body to stir you, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter lived and died for this reason, as as predicted in John's gospel, described as a death that he died to glorify Jesus, to glorify God. Brothers and sisters, this is the life and the death I want us to live and die for. This is the mentality that I want us to have. And I believe Peter is pressing upon us in these verses. So what about you today? What do you live for? What do you fight for? What do you contend for? What are you passionate about? What's your mindset when it comes to spiritual realities that are unseen in the heavenly realms? Today, I set before you two great causes or purposes in life. The salvation of souls and the glory of God. These are worth contending for. Peter gives us this succinct purpose statement in which I will anchor mine for the sermon today in his first letter in chapter 5, verse 12. You've heard this before. By his amanuensis, by Sylvanus, Sylvanus, who's writing this letter, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So in, in, accordance, with, in accordance with this purpose, My purpose today is to help you stand in the grace of God and the gospel by fighting in this holy war. What holy war is that? Well, for the salvation of your souls first and for the glory of God. So to put more succinctly, contend for your souls and contend for the glory of God. So these are the two points. If anyone's taking notes, my daughter reminded me, hey, have people write things out. Take these two things down. Sorry, I didn't get it in your bulletin. Contend, which is another word for fight, but I really like this word, contend for the once and all faith. So contend for your souls against the passions of your flesh. And two, contend for the glory of God against the slander of the world. Okay? Contend for your your souls against the passions of the flesh. Contend for the glory of God against the slander of the world. So the bottom line here is the salvation of souls and the glory of God. These two great realities, really, they're the only things worth fighting for. In so many ways, the only things worth standing for, living for, because they are eternal. Two things I was reminded in our last verses when we were talking about love one another earnestly from a pure heart, having purified our souls from the obedience to the truth, right? 
Only two things are eternal, the word of God and the souls of men. In other words, another way of saying it here, the only two things that are really eternal and heavy and important are the souls of men and the glory of God. So these two eternal realities should weigh heavy on us this morning, but yet we have joy inexplicable, Peter says, full of glory. The saving of souls, yours and others, mine, and the glory of God among the nations. Is there any better life to live? So these two fronts of the Holy War are to win souls for the glory of God and to win our witness for the glory of God. I want to just read Revelation 7, 9 through 12, because this kind of paints a picture of where we want to see our lives in the end, right? In that great uh, day of, of, uh, of the Lord gathering us. After this, I looked, you're familiar with this. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying aloud with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I think if you've been involved in missions at all, you're often asked, will you, your life be part of seeing this great multitude gather? But I ask you here this morning, will you be there? Will you be there? Ellie, will you be there? Eric, will you be there? Joseph, brother, will you be there? Sam, will you be there? How do we know that we will be there? Well, Peter gives us a warning at some things that could keep us from being there. So let's get acclimated to where we're dropping in the passage. Notice that right before our passage in 1 Peter 2.10, he's just reminded his mostly Gentile audience that though they were not once not God's people, hadn't received mercy, now they were God's people. Now they had received mercy. He's reminding them, Peter's reminding them again and again of their identity, right? I would like to suggest that in these next verses, he is urging us not to receive God's grace in vain, not to squander our priesthood by giving into the passions of the flesh. These next verses serve both as a summary statement for the first part of Peter's letter, namely our being, our identity, our, our sonship, right? And it also serves uh, for the second part. So these are, these are transition verses. Where are we going in these next weeks? The opportunity, namely Peter is going to be talking about, to live as aliens in the world, to bring glory to God by our witness among those who are perishing in the face of hostility. So Peter takes us by the cheeks. You can just get this here, right? He takes us by the cheeks, looking us firmly in the eyes, looking us squarely in the eyes and speaking lovingly but firmly he wants to wake us up. He wants to cha he changes his tone, right? And he uses this term of endearment, beloved, and this word urge for the first time in his epistle. 
So we want to ask these questions of the text this morning. When it comes to contending for our souls against the fat passions of the flesh, we want to ask, why is there a war against our souls? So look with me at the scripture here where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Do you see that? Do you see that there? You're hearing that. But do you see it in your scripture that there is a war going on against your soul? But why? Why would the passions of the flesh be coming for your soul? I submit that this war is waged against you to do the very opposite, to prevent the things that Peter's intended purpose stand for, right? Peter wants you to stand in the grace of God. The passions of your flesh want you to fall flat on your face, right? Or later in his second epistle, Peter talks about these great attributes of virtue, faith, love, Hope, brotherly affection, step, knowledge, steadfastness, right? And he says, if these are increasing, this will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? Passions of your flesh want you to be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. Folks, it's possible to be educated beyond our obedience. Not a thought that's unique to me, I remember hearing it of all places in church planting uh, seminar at Jeff City with Missouri Baptist. And it really has stuck with me. But this is the point. The passions, your flesh, attack your soul to take you out, right? So that you will not be fruitful and effective for the glory of God. So, That's what they work towards, right? They work this the soul-destroying attack on your soul. In 1 Peter 2.9, we have read that, the, that your purpose, your very calling as, a, calling as a chosen race. Remember from last week, the last two weeks? Your calling as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, is that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But your flesh wages war against your soul to keep you from doing that very thing, to keep you from even seeing that marvelous light. Certainly to keep you from proclaiming, to make you forget that you ever saw it. For God's glory to be relegated to the peripheral or the irrelevant, to defile your priestly garments. Make you fall in love with this world and forget your identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, a force to be reckoned with, right? Jesus told Peter, upon this rock will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The passions of your flesh are in league with enemy of our soul, the devil, to keep you from that proclamation, or or otherwise making your proclamation soiled or rendered useless by your defilement. I love this book. I want to pull a quick illustration from it, just as I pause there and step away. Man, get this book and read it, The Christian Incomplete Armor by William Gurnall. Uh, how, how many years ago was this written? In the 1400s, 1200s? And yet when we read it, we're all like, 
How did this guy know the things that he knows for today? So listen to this battle a bit against these old and new natures, or or in this case, the battle uh, of how Satan is in league with our flesh. Now, according to this interpretation of flesh and blood, the apostle is not saying that the war is over between your old and new natures when you're in Christ. You know from experience this is not the case. The spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit throughout the whole course of a Christian's life. Were there no devils, you would still have your hands full of resisting the corruptions of your own heart. What Paul wants you to see is that your old nature is only a private, only a private in the war against your new nature. Satan comes to the battle as an ally of your flesh and launches a massive attack. He is the general who marshals your sinful inclinations, exercises them mercilessly, mercilessly, and sends them out as a united front against the power of God in your life. Compare it, I'll just use this following illustration, to the following situation. Suppose that while a king is fighting to subdue his own mutinous subjects, the passions of your flesh, right? Some superior forces, troops, some superior foreign troops should join with them and take command. Then the king no longer fights primarily against his subjects, but against a foreign power. You see the spiritual analogy. Even as the Christian is fighting against his own inner corruptions, Satan joins his power to the residue of the old nature and assumes command. It could be said that our sin is the engine and Satan the engineer. What's on the line here? Our souls, right? Peter says contend for our souls, or he tells us this war is against our souls, the most precious thing we have. Those of us who were at Elias this week, Luke was there. Let's see, who else was there? Luke, Peyton, and I, we saw an unprovoked attack on our brother Clay. Clay's not here today, right? So this is what happened. There's a guy um, who's being counseled at a table, obviously under the influence of narcotics, when suddenly Clay's just behind the counter doing what baristas do, the barista thing. And this guy fixes his gaze on Clay, gets up, spilling the coffee, goes behind the counter, way behind the counter, behind the cash register, and is in his face shouting things I, of course, cannot repeat. Garrett, you were there. And ready to come to blows, ready to start a physical altercation with clay. This is a picture of the passions of our flesh coming for us, right? It's like out of nowhere, what's going on, right? So clay abstained. He abstained from the passions of his flesh. He abstained from reacting. God won the victory. And all of us guys were thinking, we're going to have to try to restrain this guy. But he walked away, right? Dan stepped in. Um, And uh, we can be praying for the spiritual battle that rages daily among us, especially sometimes so intense there at Elias. So if you know the preciousness of what you defend, you will defend it. Folks, your souls are precious. I hope they're precious to you. They are so, so, so precious to me. So temptations uh, uh, will come, but make no mistake, brothers and sisters, like suffering, right? Like, like suffering, war against 
Your soul is either upon you this morning or it will come. Will we endure or thwart the attack? We must know the nature of the desires we face. Okay? Know thine enemy. A famous Chinese guy who wrote a book on war said that. So know thine enemy, right? I think the Lord would have us do that this morning. What is the enemy we face? What are these passions of the flesh? Have you thought much about it? This phrase, passions of the flesh. This desire, our lust in verse 14 of chapter 1, Peter uses to warn us to be conformed against the passions of your former ignorance. The word desire just indicates those unbridled natural impulses that come from our fallen nature, right? But we see the same word in Mark 4.19. Guess what? From who? Mark. Where did he get his gospel? Peter, right? Peter would have been the eyewitness source account to Mark's gospel. Mark uses it to talk about the parable of the sower, right? To talk about that thorny soil, that killer of fruitfulness, that graveyard of the seed. We say seeds die, right? And from it come life. But this is the graveyard of graveyards, right? The thorny soil. Do you recall what that thorny soil stood for? The cares and concerns of this world, the desire for other things. If we cannot define those passions of the flesh... We will not be able to fight back against them. Yet do you see, brothers and sisters, do you see how subtle they can be? Simply the desire for other, apparently even, maybe even good things. Remember this, church, this attack comes against you, especially in order to keep you from ever seeing the excellencies of God, ever marveling at his light. To keep you from seeing the marvelous light as marvelous. All the passions of the flesh have to do is take your eyes off the glories of God. But for a moment and turn them on something trivial. Anybody ever read the screw tape letters? It really dissects the spiritual attack on the life of man. Something Turning your, just turn your mind to something trite, something safe, like YouTube videos. Kittens. about squirrels? about dude perfect? Super Wipeout? It's on reruns, I guess, these days. What about animal videos? I don't know if you guys get distracted by those. But all these things suddenly can look kind of marvelous, Right? And shiny that it dims God's glory in our eyes. What do we do when passions belittle God's preciousness? Well, let's turn again to the nature of this attack and see the strategy that Peter gives us. Remember previously in verse 14 that he talks about the passions of your former ignorance, including, sorry, cluing us in that this is an attack where? On your body or your mind first? You can talk back. Body or your mind? What's that? Your mind, right? Because your passions, where your passions start in your mind, right? Look at me at what Peter says in 113, uh, sorry, in verses earlier here. He says, therefore, this actually comes, yeah, therefore, because of the salvation previously talked about, secured in the gospel, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully using your mind 
on the grace that we be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how many times our minds are mentioned. So let me ask you, beloved, where do you set your mind? Upon what do you set your mind the most? The grace to be brought to you? Whatever you set your mind on, ultimately you are hoping in, trusting in, rejoicing in, worshiping, enjoying. This will be the fuel for your passions. Recall that this hope talked about here is a fixed, firm confidence in God and who God is and what he's done and what he promises to be to us based upon what he has done. So where are your passions, church? What are you most passionate about? One time in life, I was really excited about spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. It was about 20 years ago, right? That I first heard that, maybe 25 now. And I, I loved it, right? From the words of John Piper in the book, Desiring God, and him speaking at Passion 97 in Austin. It rocked my world. It really did. It showed me the God-centeredness of life, right? Do you realize that if God was not God-centered, we would be hating life, right? That's an old expression, if I can bring that in. It would be a very bad thing. Imagine our sun, S-U-N, veiling itself. What happens to life on earth? Right? It's gone. We're frozen. We're dead. Right? So for God not to be self-exalting is a really, really bad thing. Does anybody get that? Guys, you're told the opposite today. It's all about you, me, right? My body, right? My account. My autonomy, my life, right? My pleasures, my wants, my desires, my needs. Guys, that is the biggest lie. Even snuck into the security of the believer in some cases. Once saved, always saved. I'm good. Really. What about this war that's against your flesh? What about the admonitions of the salvation to be received, right? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Folks, I know a lot of people that said I'm good 20 years ago that are no longer walking with Jesus, right? And some of you guys might have just been walking a few years, a few days, I don't know, maybe 50. But how will you finish and how will you fight or contend for your souls against the passions of your flesh? Because I promise you they want to kill you, right? They want to kill your faith. So knowing what's at stake, what do we do? What do we do? Where do we get passions? What do we, what do we do with this thing called passion? Well, Buddhists would say, kill your desire. It stinks. Now, just kill your desire because there's really no you. There's no self. Now, that's a lie, right? The Bible would say, you need and I need new passions. In fact, the good news today is that you have received new passions. Having been born again to a living hope. Sarah, you've received new passions. Dauntus, if you're, you're born again, you've received new passions. Mario, you have new passions. Shanti, you have new passions, right? Passions for the glory of God. Passions for the supremacy of God. Passions for the souls of men. Passions for things that are unseen and eternal. Turning your eyes off of things that are seen and that are temporary. So knowing what's at stake... 
our souls and the preciousness of it and a little bit of the attack, the nature of the attack on our minds, right? What do we do? Or we contend. Peter gives us a threefold strategy in these three words. Look with me again or listen or look, whichever, abstain. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. First says, as sojourners and exiles. So those three words, your identity as sojourners and exiles, you do what? You abstain. Now this word in the Greek, uh, thankfully, means abstain. Convenient. It often is abstaining for sanctification, right? The soul. Sanctification. Abstaining from sexual immorality um, in 1 Thessalonians 4. But do you have a plan to abstain from fleshly desires? Do you have a plan to abstain from attacks on your mind? Is it things like don't go there? Don't click that. Don't allow your mind to wander. Don't feed your flesh, but starve it. You must fight to live as sin is dead to you and put to death the desires of the flesh. But folks, we can't just do abstain. Can't just fight passions and the negative. Amen? Anyone find that do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, all these things are destined to perish with use and not really useful in restraining what, brother? Desires of the flesh. Fleshly indulgence, right? Desires of the flesh. So look with me at verse 11. Peter has given us the what and abstain. Continue to look here. Again, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So we, we know that abstain is that negative piece. Then we want to ultimately have a straight strategy of abstaining and replacing. Right? Um, and then the, the, the how is really as sojourners and exiles. He's just reminding us again and again who we are. Are you a sojourner? What is a sojourner? You guys thought about that lately? A person without any rights and privileges of citizenship? You might ask, man, how does that help us? So you don't love the things this world loves. You're not in love with this world. How about exiles? What's it like to be on a, a long flight to glory, right? This is flyover country. Except for the fact that God's called you to be in the world and not of it. To love the world like he loved the world and ultimately to lay down your life that he might be proclaimed among the nations. Amen? That's what God is inviting you to this morning. But through Peter, he's warning you of this obstacle, this attack. So how are some ways that we can practically contend against the flesh? Fight, contend for our souls against the flesh. Let's get real practical here. How about fasting? This is crucial to do battle with our fleshly desires. It reveals when you go without eating for one meal, two meals, three meals, 24 hours, drink only water. You find out what you're trusting in very, very quickly. How much you're relying on food, on sugar, on caffeine, right? To bring you happiness. To keep you from going off on someone and just, you know, doing bad things to them. True? If you're not relying on God... It will be short-lived, that self-control, that fleshly restraining of your own flesh. So, so fasting, right? Starve the flesh from instant gratification and develop disciplines to feed your soul in, places, in place of eating food or, or grazing. So easy to do that once you have a kitchen. I know it was really hard when I lived in the dorms, that little fridge 
Sometimes I just go and open the fridge and look at the food. It was strange, I know, but I was just so amazed to have my own food. It was just great. There it was. I had my own stash. So if you starve the flesh, to some degree, right, if you fast, it ultimately will help you to fight against the flesh. Those two are greatly connected. The appetites are connected physiologically, and certainly there's other things to fast from. How about scripture memory and recitation? Bethlehem Baptist always called them fighter verses. Memorize scripture and use them to stand and fight. I would suggest 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 as your fighter verse, if it'll be your first. If you haven't thought about that in that way, make it your food, brothers and sisters. Just as Jesus reminds us, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4, 4. I love those lyrics that we just sang, O Great God. We sing, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Brothers and sisters, sing and meditate on the true things of God. And that will do your soul wonders. Do that here and do that in private. As a very practical example, if anyone's ever heard Piper's use of the word anthem, A-N-T-H-E-M. Each one stands for something different. It's real helpful. The first one is this very thing, this idea of abstain. Avoid. Avoid those things which feed your flesh. Avoid is the A, right? Avoid those things which would ultimately dilute your passions, your new passions, but pure, sincere love for Jesus. So that's a void, right? Then the temptation comes for this N-T-H-E-M, right? N is say no. Now, some of you girls, I don't know if you're getting bored. Us guys are like, man, we need this. Now, you ladies, I want to make it real to you. There's a comparison thing. You know, compare yourself, comparing yourself to magazines, maybe being tempted to dress less modestly. Don't do it. Just say no. Maybe, maybe to look at things. Yeah, maybe to look at images that you shouldn't look at. So that temptation comes, whatever that is, say no, say it out loud. No, not today, not today, flesh, not today, Satan. Saw that on a t-shirt recently. Yes, the back. So you just, just say no, it will be good. It will, it will help. Okay, the T is the turn. You turn from that to something else. The idea here, if you don't remember anything else I said about Anthem, you have to fight fire with fire. Sin promises pleasure. This will feel good. This will be good for you. Well, yeah, it'll feed your flesh. This is going to be wonderful, whatever it is. This food, this image, click here. This thought we starts in our minds, right? You'll love it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be satisfying. It's going to be pleasant. You have to fight that with the power of a superior pleasure, promise of a superior pleasure. So that turn, you turn from that, and whatever you turn to, scripture, accountability, music, a walk, Whatever you turn to, you hang on to that as if it was your life preserver and you were drowning, right? You hang on to that and you exercise your mind as the muscle that it is and you enjoy it. That's the E. And the M is move. Move from inactivity to activity. Folks, it's going to take ultimately letting God satisfy your desires in the gospel 
for you to fight against the passions of the flesh. It's a strategy of remove and replace. Did you hit those letters Absolutely. A is avoid. N is say no. Avoid and the N is say no. T is turn. T turn. Turn from. H is hold. M is move. So, yeah, even physically move. Yeah, sorry, enjoy. T-H, turn, hold. Stepped away from my notes, didn't I? Enjoy, thank you, reminded me of that, brother. Enjoy and move. Enjoy is important. So, you know, how many has read Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? It was required reading in 1998 when I arrived for a J-term with Dr. Donald Whitney. So required reading, Pilgrim's Progress. Loved it. Loved the book. We look at Christian on his way to the celestial city from the city of destruction. Right? He faces many attacks along the way, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Right? Who's your favorite? Talkative, Mr. Talkative. Oh, my word. I didn't think that guy was ever going to stop talking. In the old English, that is hard. It's hard to work through those passages, right? So... You have uh, an attack on Mr. Legality, attack from Mr. Legality, and then finally, Apollyon. Christian loves this one. Apollyon comes to face Christian, right? And Christian perseveres, right, by, this, by his spiritual armor, by the sword of the Spirit. And he always has with him that little scroll, right, the words of the king. I love personally the one which... I get it confused between the kid's version and the real version, but it's when he knows to go through a certain door, he's going to have to fight. And he says, write my, he, he observes someone else do that. It says, write my name down. And then he goes and he stands and he fights all his might, right, for, for his soul. It's a picture of the fight for the soul to progress, to continue in sanctification. So let me ask you today, when are you weak? What temptations are you most susceptible to? You want to think about those things, right? What is your Achilles heel? Your weak point. The attack comes there. Is it the fear of man? Is it the need to be needed? Is it comparing yourself with others, a desire to be accepted? Remember who you are and who you belong to. And remember what Peter says in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned, have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, get this, don't miss it, overseer of your souls. Souls, right? That you might die to sin. He bore in his body, right? Your sins. On the tree, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Folks, I still remember almost the row I was sitting in at VSU. Yes, back in the 90s when I was in college, mid-90s, when I first heard about daily dying to self. I was like, this is amazing. It's a theology of death, they said. It's a death to self. I'd never heard that before. And it really did speak light to my soul. Then after 25 years, you get used to it. You've heard it before, right? So we really do have to drill down. What does it look like, right, to die to sin? I'd say it looks like new passions, right? New passions informing your identity, which informs your doing, right? That's the order that it's going to come. 
So I want to reiterate, kind of just as a synopsis of this first point, to stand, to contend for your souls against the passions of your flesh. What is it that Jesus says about the preciousness of the soul? And Mark, again, this would have been from Peter, ultimately, chapter 8. Um, he says, if anyone would come after me. So in calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Are you doing that today? Are you denying yourself not of any pleasure? Because he's come to give you real pleasure. Pleasures you've never had before. Have you tasted have you tasted today and seen that God is good? How blessed is the man that takes refuge in him? Do you long for the spiritual milk of the word? Well, you would if you've tasted and seen that God is good. If you're not longing today, it could be that you've not tasted. Right? No one, after drinking old wine, longs for the new. Because they say, what? Old's good enough? Same is true of Folgers and Elias Coffee. It's crazy. Have you tasted and seen that God is good? And then he says this, so take up your cross and follow me. So deny yourself what again? Just the stuff that actually isn't going to satisfy. The stuff's going to kill your soul, right? All the stuff that the world goes after. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Great question. Second question, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Answers to those? No profit gaining the whole world and losing your own soul, and you cannot give anything to regain your soul. And then comes these words, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his father with his holy angels. Note the seriousness of this, if you will, right? What's equated with being ashamed of Jesus? Gaining the world, affluence, being led astray with the cares and concerns of riches, deceitfulness of riches, the cares and concern for this world, the desire for other things, comfort, security, saving your life in this world. How serious should we be with the passions of our flesh? Well, serious, very serious, right? Let's wage war against them. Wake up, folks, to this all-out siege. Wake up, church, to this all-out siege against your soul by the passions of your flesh. Mark, pun intended, I guess, what Mark says in 943. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled. Hard saying here. Then with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Church, Jesus would have us take this very serious, the temptation to sin very seriously. Don't hit the snooze button here. Don't enter into hell with a whole body, two eyes, two hands, two feet. But do what it takes to cut off the source of sin. 
But I want you that sport, spiritual mortification is much harder than physical, right? Everybody gets this wrong and they say, ah, you can't do that. Hey, you just want me to cut off my hand? Really? No, he wants you to cut off the sinful relationship. Yeah, the one in which you're committing sexual immorality. Yep, that's going to be harder. But do it as if your life depended on it because it does. And it'll be worth it, right? You have to look to the reward. But you might not understand what that reward and the nature of that reward really is. What's it going to take? What will you fight? What extreme, to what extreme will you go? Will you delete the account? Will you hit the turn off the internet button? Whatever that looks like. Will you do, a, do with a dumb phone? Will you unsubscribe? So... Again, another great work by John Bunyan. This one called Holy War, we read about a diabolical attack on the city of Mansoul. What are the gates in which Satan can enter, in which the Avalist can enter? They're these. The eye gate, the ear gate, the mouth gate, the nose gate, the feel gate, representing the five senses. And nothing can enter the city except through these senses. Right? So disguised as a serpent, Diabolus goes and he attacks the ear gate. Remember that this is what came to Eve, right, in the garden. When the serpent makes her doubt her freedom. I mean, you can't eat from any of the trees in this garden? Really? Lame, man. And then makes her doubt her place, right? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Which they weren't already like God. They were created in God's image. How more like God can you be? Well, you have to try to be a usurper. You actually have to try to take his place. You have to be that one that says, hey, it's my life. I'm going to lead it. Live it the way I want to. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my baby. They don't usually say that, but that's what they're doing, right? And how ridiculous is that argument, right? That you would have the right to kill your child. That's not, that's not true. That's a lie of the devil, right? Even in cases of rape, that baby did not do anything wrong to be conceived in your womb, ladies. He did nothing wrong. Doesn't deserve to die. Doesn't deserve to be sacrificed. That's a hard teaching too, but so is cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. So, church, contend for your soul. Contend for your soul by waging that Contend to your soul by fighting against uh, those passions of the flesh which wage war against you. And then finally, contend for the glory of God against the slander of the world. We'll have to summarize here. What's the nature of the slander? Look with me again at verse 12. He says this, the second verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers on the day that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I surmise that we should just start with the bottom line here. What's the bottom line? What's at stake here? The glory of God. Not your glory. Not the glory of man. Not even initially the salvation of souls. But it's the glory of God. Will God get the glory in your life? He deserves it. And oh, how good it is to glorify God. How good and pleasant it is to glorify God. 
C.S. Lewis once noted that it drove him crazy how many times the Bible said, glorify me, praise me, love me, worship me. He said it was like an old lady feigning for compliments. Then when he realized who God was, he realized that in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him, to be satisfied in everything he promises to be to us. I'm talking about every desire you've ever had. Satan didn't create your desire. God did. Satan did not start this war. God did. He put enmity between the woman's seed and Satan's seed so that we would not end up in a Christless hell of an eternity. He is sovereign over this battle. He is sovereign over your struggles. He is sovereign over the slander that will come your way when you seek to live according to the values of the kingdom and shun the values of the world. So what's at stake here? <clears throat> Again, we're, we're, we're talking about the same thing, the salvation of souls and the glory of God. <clears throat> We've talked about the salvation of your soul, but now we are talking about the salvation of other souls. Pastor Samuel and I have had this conversation this week a little bit about this day of visitation. It could be two options. A day of visitation in which the Lord comes with his salvation. I'm taking it as that, but it also is judgment. For sure it's judgment. But oftentimes it is used like in Acts chapter 15 when Peter is remembered, is recalled, it's recalled that, that um, they visited the Gentiles. God visited the Gentiles with salvation. From Acts chapter 10, but that's what we're recounting in Acts 15, 14. So I take it that Peter's aim is the salvation of these souls that are slandering. Will it happen every time? We don't know. Did it happen every time? We don't know, right? Will it happen every time on our behalf, right? When we seek to do good deeds in the face of slander, we don't know, right? But we trust God and we trust that that is the aim of this passage at least, or I believe that's what I'm taking, that Peter is aiming for their salvation, What do we mean by that? So in sum, God being glorified by the conversion of a human soul who sees believers enduring up under slander and yet are still doing good deeds for the very purpose of that person's salvation and the glory of God. Amen? That's what's going to bring people to Christ. That's what's going to cause people to ask us about the hope that lies within us when they see us under Persecution. They see us enduring up under suffering. So again, working backwards, speaking of you as evildoers. Now, what would these Gentile nations be saying? You can use either word. I believe that nations fits here, but what are they saying against them? Well, just a few verses later, we see that Peter saying, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So is it out of ignorance? And foolishness that they speak, it could be. Yeah, it looks like it is in this case. So they don't know what they're saying. What could the possibilities be? First century Christians were accused of crazy things. Folks like cannibalism. What did Jesus say? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, right? So when they were having the love feast, ah, that's incest. Ah, that's, that's cannibalism. Those, those Christians, they're eating flesh and they're drinking blood. Ah, don't go mix with them. Pretty crazy, right? Pretty crazy slander. Bible, it's not true. Right? But that was their ignorance. That's what they thought. Tactus, one of the historians from that time, right, said of Christians, they were hated because of their vices. 
And then in, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we read this reality. We read this situation. Christians were maligned for not joining in with the Gentiles in the same flood of debauchery, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Is that any of that going on today in y'all's neighborhood? Anybody? Anybody? Seems to go. What's that? Last night. Last night. Yeah, our place too. Yeah. So in some, in that one, right, just because you're not going along with them, they're maligning you. Because you're choosing to live lives contrary to their values, they're maligning you. Church, the time is here, I believe, when this is going to happen to us increasingly, right? Religious liberties being stripped away, right? But we shouldn't count on that. We're sojourners. The good news is, is it will be increasingly obvious that you are very different if you live according to the values of this kingdom, right? The bad news is, is that persecution is coming. I've felt that theme in preaching and just in the spirit and, and God speaking for probably some, I want to say 30 years now, right? That put me at the tender age of 17. I've, I, I've seen it coming, right? And I believe that if you don't agree with the world going forward, that human autonomy is the greatest virtue in the world, what's the opposite of that? What do we believe? That, that God's God-centeredness is the greatest virtue in the world, right? It's exactly diabolically opposite. Human autonomy is coming, right, for us. Again, we talked about my body, my choice, right? But, man, my gender now, right? I can choose whatever gender I want. Compete whatever side of the men and women's sports that I want. Right, and if, and if it, I'm, I can choose my own pronouns, folks, they're messing with language, right? They're changing the language. Of course, it did that a long time ago with abortion. It's really murder, but we call it that. So you will be slandered, okay? It will happen, but it starts in fighting back. We have to remember that people that coming us against us, God loves them, and they very well could be our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Saul became Paul, right? So keep your conduct honorable among the nations for the glory of God. And that's what I want to encourage us as we come for a close. What does it look like to keep your conduct honorable? Well, this word honorable, it's usually translated good. So it's most often good, but it can also be beautiful or worthy. Think about that. Think about the beautifulness of it. Where would the beauty come from? The glory of God, right? These, these things are beautiful that you're doing. These deeds are honorable or beautiful because they reflect God's glory. So in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 15, we get this concept of conduct. So we, we're working backwards here, so we kind of know what good deeds look like, right? <clears throat> but what about this idea of conduct? Well, it's one of Peter's favorite words. He admonishes his audience in verse 15, chapter 1. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And again in verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, another key word from our passage, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So these come prior to our scripture today, but Peter carries this theme in addressing wives, right? He uses the same verse C when he talks about believing wives bringing unbelieving husbands to the faith without a word by the conduct of their wives. He uses the same word conduct and the same idea of seeing when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So this is an ongoing observation that the, 
those who are slandering and speaking evil against us are having of our good deeds, right? And then in 3.16, in the context of suffering for righteousness' sake, but being blessed by it, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Only the Spirit of God can do that. You just have to persevere through a whole lot of slander, a whole lot of evil being spoken against you, right? Brothers and sisters, from this verse, we get the idea of apologetics because of give a defense, give a reason, apologia. I want us to just realize in context, we're talking about this being held out to an audience that is suffering, right? That is suffering for the righteousness sake, right? They're giving up their freedoms. I believe Hebrews would talk about a lot of what's going on. Their property is being confiscated. They're joyfully and willingly accepting that because they're visiting others in prison, right? Why? Because they have a better and lasting possession in heaven. So my question for you, right, is would you risk your safety, your security for Christ? Will you risk it to make him known? Some of you are thinking about going to places that has been Satan's kitchen for a very long time. Satan's playground, right? We've sent people to those places. But you risk security, convenience, right? How will you keep your conduct, your behavior honorable or good among the nations? So you have to keep it, right? That's that, the idea of keeping something that's treasured, that's important to you. All of this is for the final culmination of the glory of God, right? That's really what we're aiming at here. That's what we're saying is that we want to contend for the glory of God over and against the slander of the nations. So, in summary, <clears throat> I want you to stand and contend for your souls. You have to stand physically, but in your minds, think about this. What you're going to do to contend for your souls and the souls of others against the passions of your flesh. I want you to contend for the glory of God against the slander of the world. In John 21, Jesus had asked Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And the answer had come, you know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. And three times had come back from Jesus. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. But then comes verses 18 and 19 where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Some of that bodily autonomy there, right? When you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John adds, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying that to him, Jesus looks at Peter and says, follow me. Peter reflects back on this. Remember? We started with this, Jesus' prediction in his second epistle when he says, I think it is right as long as I'm in the body to stir up, to stir, stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you will be able to recall 
these things at any time through the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And a worn out, sore preacher man from time to time. Tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down, right? The Christian historian Hegesippus has Peter escaping crucifixion from Rome through a gate where he, when he sees Jesus. This is extra biblical, but this is very much like what we're reading and seeing. He sees Jesus going back into the city and he says, Lord, he cries out, Lord, where are you going? To which Jesus says, I'm coming to be crucified again. And that was enough for Peter to turn around, decide it was time for Jesus' words to be fulfilled on his behalf concerning the death he did die for the glory of God. But he was crucified upside down because he did not feel like he was worthy to be crucified like his master. Beloved, Jesus is calling us to live for his glory. He's calling us to live and die and lay down our lives among the nations from his glory. This must come first, this type of life, if ever we are to say we finished well. So fight, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Contend against, contend for your souls against the passions of the flesh and contend for the glory of God over and against the slander of the world. How are you going to do this? To stand in the grace of the gospel of Christ. To fight this fight for your soul and for your witness, right? For the glory of God, for your witness among the nations. Peter finished well. Will you? I believe you will, beloved. I believe you will. If you heed the exhortation to stand in the grace of God and contend for the souls of men and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power in it, the simplicity of it. God, I just pray that as we go from here, even as we stand to sing, as Jordan and the worship team comes, that we might uh, stand and reflect and worship you in spirit and in truth. God, that you would bring to mind the things from this passage that are most important, the things that will most give grace and give aid and give help to your church for the fight that is at hand, for your glory among the nations, for the fight for the souls of men and women, for our witness among the nations, for suffering that will come against your church, against your body again, Jesus. For those that you're calling to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ here and especially there abroad. Lord, we pray that you would receive glory in the church and in your people now and forevermore. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this exhortation and pray that we'd be able to, to stand and heed it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.